0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. We
1: so far have thought of choice as something universally understood in the same way because it's innate, it's inborn. But what if we were to think of choice as a social construct? And that was really the beginning of my work on choice. But I'm also at that moment making a choice. And that choice was the choice to study choice. And I did make that choice um, in a very conscious way. I was very consciously saying, look, I want to study choice because this is something I care a lot about because of my own personal experiences. But it's also something where I somehow implicitly understood That this was a topic that was so rich, that was so multifaceted because so many different disciplines and so many people from different walks of life cared about it. That I, that the, no matter how long I studied it, it would never be done. That it would keep giving.
0: Yeah, you have a new book out called Think Bigger. And as I was uh, telling you before we hit record here, I had actually literally just finished reading your previous book, The Art of Choosing, was about to reach out to you when your publicist did. So that was uh, very serendipitous. But uh, before we get into the book and your work, I wanted to start asking, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that have influenced and shaped uh, who you've become and what you've done with your life and career?
2: Hmm, Interesting. Um, Well, my father died all of a sudden when I was 13.
1: And I remember the one of the things that I most remember about my dad was back in the day. And my father used to love to drive. He was an an immigrant and he used to love to jump in the car on a Friday night. And we would just go. I don't even know where half the time, but I was always thrown in the backseat. And mom and dad would start driving, and mom was in charge of the maps. This is, you know, before GPS. And and my mom would be reading the map, and dad would make a mistake, and my mom would be like, No, no, you have to you have to go back, go back there, and then and we'll make a right there. My dad would always say, No. (laughs) You should a man always has to go forward. I can never go back. (laughs) And and somehow that line has always stuck with me. I would say my mother, the line she gave me that I often quote her on, particularly if I'm doing, um, a talk for s- sort of, uh, women and the reason why they should have careers is, you know, when my father died and he died all of a sudden when I was 13 and my mother was, and my sister was five, um, my mother changed at that moment. She was a very traditional woman. Um, but. She became a, a kind of odd feminist, not that I would ever describe my mom as a true feminist, but sort of. She said to me and my sister repeatedly after that is, I never want to hear you walk in this door and talk about marriage. And I never want to meet any man you want to marry until you first stand up on your own two feet, that you have to be able to take care of yourself first. Um and, you know, it, it's funny that line because my mother would always say, stand up on your own two feet and with your back straight. And that was her line. And this is long before leaning in or leaning out ever came into the world. So yeah. I always just say you got to just stand up straight.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is really contrary to sort of like the typical Indian mom who's obsessed with her daughter getting married or their son getting married. Um, you know, And we'll come back to that. One thing I wonder is... Um, for you losing your father at such an early age, uh, and you know, maybe this is one of those things you only recognize in retrospect, but what did that make you change about how you would live your life going forward based on that experience?
2: Oh, it, it was big.
1: It was a very big deal that yeah, my father died. It changed my life dramatically because, um, I was, you know, both my sister and I are blind and, I, though, even though we were both blind, because we were blind and my father had died, my mother made the very controversial choice that she wasn't going to leave money aside for a dowry or a wedding, that it was more important that we get a good education. And, you know, paradoxically, I was the first female in my family to be allowed to go away from home to go to college. And that's because my dad died. Wow. So it, it made tremendous change, the fact that he died. It was almost like because of his death, um, it was an opportunity, in a sense, for freedom. Hmm. I mean, not that my dad was sitting around taking away our freedom. It's just right. that we we then had to be less traditional.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. You know, this is something I, I always wonder about because, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I still have my parents. And I've talked to people who have, lost parents and I, I feel like to me it's one of those experiences that uh, there's no self-help book for this one where you can talk to people about it and it just seems like it rock your world I mean especially as a 13 year old girl Um, because even now as a 44 year old man like it's to me I think that is literally the most terrifying thing my biggest fear in life uh, especially being single is that one or both of my parents will die before I get married or have kids
2: Yeah. Um, my,
1: the other thing that happened when my father died was, you know, we were a traditional Indian family and we were, um, my parents were very devout Sikhs. And so I used to go to the temple a lot. Um, but uh, the Gurudwara. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was very important, I think to both my parents, but maybe more to more so for my father is he really didn't want everybody to know that his children were going blind. Mm-hmm. That was something that, as many Indian families do, they keep it quiet if there is a child that has some sort of an impairment. Um, you know, I think there was a good amount of shame, a good amount of worry. What would people say? um and so there was a lot of pressure on me to always hide it or find ways to disguise it. Um, but when he died, and when my father died, first of all, my mom no longer wanted to go to the gurdwara because then she would be seen with pity because she was a widow with these two children. And then on top of that, it became much harder for me to really be able to hide anymore. My vision had just gotten to the level that it was nearly impossible. So in that sense, too, his death was a trauma, but at the same time, it was also a moment of freedom, uh, because it also meant that I no longer had to hide.
0: If I remember correctly from The Art of Choosing, you weren't born blind, correct? Like you started going blind with age?
1: I was born with a rare disease, a rare form of retinitis pigmentosa. Now, a lot of Indians have retinitis pigmentosa, but I was born with a rare form of it. So I was born legally blind. So it's believed that I was born with maybe 2200 or 2400 vision. So I never had proper like full sight, Mm -hmm. but I certainly had some. It's also believed that I was colorblind or at least very nearly colorblind from very early on. Um, I certainly got around a bit independently. I learned how to read and write and I still know how to write my letters and things. I stopped being able to sort of read and write by about eight or nine, at which point it was just too painful. Um, and so yeah, it was a gradual decline, but I never had 2020.
0: You know, one thing I wonder is, um, this is something I, I've wondered because I've had one or two blind guests here before. And I've always wondered, you know, like when you lose something like your vision, which is kind of sort of fundamental, I think something that we all just sort of take for granted. How does that impact, uh, one, the way that you interact with other people from like, you know, an early age to now as an adult? And then what happens to your other senses? Do they become much more heightened? Like is your sense of hearing? much sharper than the average person's because your sight is impaired?
1: You know, it's interesting. A lot of people ask that question and I've tried to think about what the answer to that is. And one of my problems is I don't have this counterpoint, right? This be able to compare what I was like when I was sighted versus not sighted. And and honestly, I, I just don't know how to run that counterfactual. I like to say... Do I have a better memory? Well, people certainly think I do. I think I just had to pay a lot more attention to keeping track of information and being organized. I probably am more organized than the average person. Uh, Do I listen better than other people? In some ways I do. And in some ways I, you know, I don't. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, I'm the person who really doesn't like music, despite our stereotypes about blind people liking music. Why? Because I find music to be distracting. From all the other things that I have to listen to. Um, so I think I think I just am more likely to be reliant and pay more attention to those other things because they're giving me information. Mm-hmm. But I think I most rely on my hearing and my memory bank are the, probably the two things I most rely on. Mm. Um And uh, what was your first question? She said, do I have better senses?
0: Yeah, like, does it change? Does it alter? Like, are your other senses heightened because of the fact that you're blind? Oh, and then your social interactions with people. What are those like?
1: My social interactions definitely are different. Um, Although, again, I don't know what it would have been like if I had been sighted. And I certainly have noticed that my interactions with people are different than other blind people's interactions. So there's obviously some individual difference variable there going on. Um, However, here's what I will say about being blind that I think people often don't necessarily think of. First is that even though they'll know objectively speaking I'm blind, they will forget that I'm not going to be able to pay attention to their facial expressions
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so I'll misinformation, and I'm always very cognizant of the fact that I'm trying to listen to their tone of voice to see if there's something else and that I should be aware of it so on the one hand, it's a it's an information asymmetry problem that I can't see their facial expressions. And it's hard for people to communicate everything verbally, right? Yeah, There's some things that just not, they're not used to doing. On the other hand, so in that sense, it's a negative. On the other hand, the fact that I can't see their facial expression is in some ways a positive. Because sometimes when I'm in a meeting and there'll be something that everybody else might be thinking But no one has the courage to say it because I can't see their facial expressions. I'm much more likely to just say it. (laughs) And it's almost like people have come to count on me to say it.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, and that's because I really don't feel the punishment.
2: Yeah. I guess that's that's one
1: thing that's, um, that people that, that's sort of counterintuitive for people. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess the other thing about being blind is that. Um, people think that I must be sitting in the dark or something. That's their worst fear, I guess. I have never sat in the dark, ever. I don't know what the dark is. I think sighted people are more aware of what the dark looks like than are blind people. No matter where I am or what I'm doing, I've constantly mapping on visuals in my head so I'm kind of like living in my own little dream world I suppose yeah but I'm never in the dark
0: yeah that's interesting because I mean I know you're a writer so it's making me think about sort of you know as a writer oh
1: and I guess in that sense the
2: one sense
1: yeah that I think I do spend a lot of energy on counterintuitively is visuals hmm I make a lot of visuals. I'm constantly constructing them. That's part of my way of understanding my world, even though I don't see.
0: Okay, so that that raises a, a question, particularly because I, I have a four month old nephew, and he's kind of just now he's five months old, and you know, watching that kid uh, sort of just adapt to the world around him and like look at everything and take in everything. Having not seen things, do you like how do you construct visuals when you don't know necessarily? you don't have a representation of what something looks like.
2: I guess I make it up. Okay. And many times I will imagine what somebody or something looks
1: like that's totally untrue. And then someone will correct me. And then I'll empirically or objectively understand that my visual is incorrect and I'll go back to seeing them the way I see them. Like, for example, for you, yeah. I've already constructed a visual. I have no idea what you look like. I don't let nobody else describe to me what you look like. So I actually have no basis by which to come
2: up with a visual of you. And yet I have a visual of you.
0: So I, I know that you, you teach at Columbia. I, this is one thing I wonder, like a city like New York. I had, um, one other guest here, funny enough, who actually, uh, I think taught at Columbia as well, who was blind. Um, he was, oh, friend- is that
1: The Economist?
0: No, I think if I, I'm trying to remember his name, he was a, a guy who was friends with, um, uh, Art Garfunkel. Uh, oh, yeah.
1: Cindy. Sandy Yes, I've met him.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I remember him telling him his story about how Art, Art Garfunkel helped him, you know, get through. Because uh, unlike yes. you, he wasn't blind at, at birth, but um, that's right. he lost his sight. But I remember him telling me about that. So uh, how do you navigate day to day in a city like New York? Because like I find New York overwhelming and I can see. And every time I walk out of the subway station, I'm like, it looked like, you know, somebody kicked over an anthill. At Grand, like when you walk out of the subway at Grand Central Station.
1: So one of the things that is also amazing about being blind is that you learn things about people that most people, I think, otherwise wouldn't know or wouldn't have encountered. I would say that New York is the best city to be blind in. It's not that it's the cleanest. It's not that it's, like, the safest in terms of all the scaffolding everywhere. You could fall down a flight of, sub- a flight of stairs that are sticking out. Fall, fall, fall down subway stairs. You could cross at the wrong place, but it is actually in many ways the best city in the United States to be blind in. And the reason is because it, the grid is very understandable. It's linear. So it's easier for a blind person's head to get around. I don't have to worry about too many angles, et cetera,
2: when I'm getting around the city. Second, and this is even more critical. Unlike other cities,
1: if I'm going to a street, I'm, I'm just standing there waiting for the light to change. I can tell you nine out of 10 times. I don't have to ask somebody. I don't have to um, guess.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Invariably, the mentality of a New Yorker is when they're crossing those. You can go. They won't say hi They won't say goodbye. They won't introduce themselves. They won't hesitate and, oh, is it okay if I ask you if you would
2: like my help? No, no. They cut through all that crap. They just say, you can go. And that's very New York.
3: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project
0: So just one more question. I, I promise we'll get to the book. Um, uh, you mentioned, you know, your, your mother was like, I want you to stand on your own two feet. Uh, as a single Indian 40 something male, you know, I, I never hear the end of it about sort of dating and relationships. And I, I this is something I wondered because I, I had a, a blind guest here, a male blind guest, and I was like, what about dating? He was like, oh, blind guys are the biggest pigs you could possibly imagine. He's like, I was like, really? He was like, oh, yeah. He's like, we're, we're far worse than you are. Um, but. How are you like, what are romantic and then relationship interactions like for somebody like you?
2: So I think blind people, um, well, I, I think
1: it's hard for me to answer that question for blind people because I do have an extra layers here, right? I'm a blind Indian American who came from a traditional household. So. Clearly the baseline for me was supposed to be an arranged marriage. And one of the great disappointments for my parents was the idea that that was not in the cards. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, when I, and that was part of the reason why my, put the money towards college. I think everybody was unsure as to whether I would be able to have a romantic relationship. And I think I myself was conflicted about it. Um, I have, I would say the most significant relationships in my life was I, uh, was dating a blind wasp, a white guy who was blind, um, when I was young. Um, and there were certainly some cultural conflicts there between his being American, white American and me being Indian American, plus, mm-hmm. you know, the usual Indian mom yep. wanting. <laughs> what they want
0: yep i know it's all too well only
1: most logical to them Mm -hmm. um and then i ended up marrying a brahmin i think you're a brahmin right a south indian brahmin yep i think
0: you're a a yed right uh i'd have to look i literally filled out a com profile yesterday just to see because one of my friends was like, Oh, you should try it. I was like, I thought only Indians and in Linia had used that site. And uh yeah, no, no, I was looking just... at it, I was like, wait, there I was like Brahmin, and they're like no, 700 categories of Brahmins.
1: Yeah, but there's actually real matchmakers for your for Brahmins, South Indian Brahmins in the States. But anyway, I married a um uh, South Indian Brahmin, and a younger from and who I knew at Stanford. We both were PhD students together. Um And it was interesting. It was very controversial, certainly for his family. Uh, They wanted, you know, the usual, they wanted another Iyengar, another Brahmin. Mm -hmm. And they also certainly didn't want somebody who was raised in the U.S. And they certainly didn't want somebody who was blind. That was certainly a lot of complexities. Mm -hmm. And then um, many years later, about 18 years later, I got divorced. And I would say now my significant other is a... Jewish American scientist is a, card, a, uh, a a cardio um a well known um cardiologist. Um and so, you know, I, I guess it's and he's cited. And so I would say, you know, I, I have had relationships. Um is it um a non issue that you're blowing? No, I would never say that. Is it something that causes Anxiety and complexities in a relationship. Absolutely. Um, one of the first things that I do when I go on a date, in um, the moment a, a man shows interest, I pointedly ask them, um, "How would you feel? Like, how would you handle these situations?" Because I know now what kinds of things would disturb somebody if they were dating a blind person. Mm-hmm. Um, I also know what kinds of things people can say on a date that can, you know, be fairly obnoxious. Not that people are only obnoxious to blind people, but <laughs> yeah. my my favorite one was I went on a date and I'd actually at, told the guy ahead of time I'm blind and he was like, you want to meet me? I always do that. And he goes, yeah, 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 I want to meet you. And of course, they want to meet you because they're curious. And then you get there and you're in the middle of, you know, the meal and you're talking and he he'll suddenly say to you, well... How would you know if you love somebody? I want real love. And I'm here thinking, wait, what does vision have to do with love? <laughs> but yeah, but you discover people's assumptions.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, speaking of assumptions, uh, so I think this will make a perfect segment. Of the book, you work at what is arguably one of the most elite educational institutions in the world. You and I both were raised by Indian parents where the, expectation is that not only will you go to college, you'll go to the best damn school you get into. Um, So one thing I wonder about as an educator, uh, if you were tasked, which I realize is a big question, and I ask this to every educator because I myself curious about it, and I feel like, you know, I was a failed byproduct of this elite education system. Uh, If you were tasked with redesigning the entire thing from the ground up, what would you change? Like, what is wrong with it today? Um, What works and how would you improve it?
1: It's interesting that you're asking me this question right now because my son is in his senior year in high school and just went through the college application process and he is the son of two academics. Um, and, uh, I actually did ask myself this question and, and, you know, maybe ended up, uh, pushing for things that are fairly controversial in Indian culture. Um, so I thought given the pandemic and all that our high, our teenagers went through that maybe it was better for a young person right now to be less focused on going to a high ranked institution, which tend to be bigger, tend to be high stress. Um, and instead go to a small college where he could finally have the experience that he sort of was supposed to in high school. Mm-hmm more attention, more ability to sort of debate, and hear himself speak, uh, you know, where the professor cares. You don't have to, like, almost prove that you're worth talking to. Otherwise, you're going to be going to the Ph.D. student and the professor doesn't have time for you. So my son primarily applied to small colleges.
0: Hmm.
1: And that's unusual for, yeah. for in, particularly Indian academics.
0: Well, I'm the son of an academic, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And a Berkeley undergrad. So I know that all do well.
1: Yeah. And the other thing I would say, so that's one thing. I, I do think that we should pay more attention, not just to the rank of the institution, but really pay attention to, well, what are they going to be doing during these four years? What do we want them to achieve? Mm-hmm. Is it pure credentials? Is it a social experience? Is it? learning who they are. And I thought that it would be better for my son to spend the first four years of his real education learning who he was and what he cared about. And then he, after that, would have anyway probably go to grad school and then at that point get the credential that you really need. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, as good Indian parents, because I was more American, the Indian parents of us said, well, but he has to go then to a small college that, also has a joint program with a premier engineering school
0: <laughs> or a pre-med program probably one of the other. exactly yeah. so he
1: can only go to colleges apply to colleges that had a three two program
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which is fine by me I was a compromise yeah. now the second thing I would say after having gone through the process and now just thinking about it from the perspective of a choice scientist mm-hmm. is it's it's abundantly obvious to anybody who's looking carefully at how these college application and admission processes are working, that they have a lot of candidates that they can't really differentiate between. Yet they're supposed to create a so-called merit-based admission. And they're supposed to figure out how to make this merit-based admission, admission be one where, you know, the group of people they accept provide a sort of diverse, group that'll create a thriving culture, yada, yada, yada. I don't think they have a way from the information that they're gathering to figure all that out. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I've been thinking about is, and this is a wild idea on my part, is I would say I would change the college admission process. I would say, look, As long as you have these criteria, whatever criteria that the institution wants to set. Let's say it's Columbia University and you want to have a criteria that says, well, only people that have an SAT score of, I don't know, 1450 or 1500 and above, or an ACT score of 34 and above, plus
2: a GPA of X. So you come up with some criteria. And you say anybody with these criteria apply. And now you just won a lottery. So it's clear to everybody that everybody was equally qualified, but you use a lottery system.
1: And while on the face of it, that might feel unfair to some people. I actually think that's more fair. It takes the pressure off and it takes all the negative emotions off. It acknowledges that all these people were equal. And it allows people to feel good if they went to another school or another. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's my wild idea. They'll never do it. but.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, um, as a person who studies choice, and I think this will make a perfect segue into your work and the book, I wanted to bring back a clip from a previous episode with David Epstein about choice in particular. Uh, and I want to hear your thoughts on this. Take a listen we will underestimate future change at every time point,
3: even when we're very old. But at no time is that more true than from about 18 to the late 20s. That's when you undergo the Mm -hmm. fastest time of personality change. And so essentially right at the start of that period, we're telling someone pick now, which which is really asking them to pick for a person they don't yet know. Mm -hmm. And, And certainly in a world they can't yet conceive, unless they have a crystal ball that most people don't. And so I think it's a particularly bad time to make ironclad long-term
1: plans and we should be much more oriented toward pick something you know and i'm I'm stealing this idea from the economist and statistician robert miller we should orient people toward do the
3: thing that's going to give you a high information signal about whether it fits you or not
0: the reason i wanted to bring back that clip in particular is one because you study choice two you're an educator and three that is not the way that most indian kids are taught to think uh because I very distinctly, and this is something I've mentioned on the show before, remember my dad talking to one of my, uh, uncles and he had a like son in, in a ninth grade and he's like, what does he want to do? Does he want to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer? Does he want to work with computers? I'm like, you've limited this kid's option to four potential futures and he's a freshman in high school. And my uncle's like, all he cares about right now is girls. I'm like, that's all he should care about. He's in ninth grade. Uh, so with that in mind, talk to me about one, uh, your view on that, but how you got into this work uh, around studying choice and how it led to the book that you the, that you just wrote recently.
1: Now, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> I, I would say, to be fair to um, Indian parents, as well as educa- many education systems around the world that are different from the, the American one, what they're doing is trying to give people a track or a path so that they have something, so that they're not lost, right? And the, the, the pro of that is that they're not going to be lost. They'll, they'll be tracked into something. They'll have something that enables them to take care of themselves. You're an engineer, you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're a carpenter, you're a whatever, right? That's a system we have in India that was stolen from the Brits. Uh, We have that in Britain. We have in many parts of Europe. The American system says, look, I'm not going to track you and give you a a bucket you into a particular way of living and way of being at such an early age. I'm going to let you explore for a while. Um, And on the positive side is you might discover something really amazing. And whatever you discover, you know, you chose it. On the negative side, you could be exploring for a very long time and end up empty-handed or dissatisfied with what you've chosen, which can also happen. So I think that's the trade-off
2: between the two systems. Um The how did I choose
1: to study choice? And I would say both my books are essentially about choice. And the reason why, I guess the way in which I came to choose that so back to how being blind and my father dying when I was 13 was a moment in, in many ways of freedom for me, um, was that, you know, I was blind. And so the obvious careers for an Indian girl were considered to be off the table. So I didn't have the pressure to be a doctor, to be an engineer. And so my mom had no idea what a blind person could do. She just knew that I needed to stand up on my own two feet. Um, at one point, I remember my father said to me when I was like 10 years old, he goes, well, when you grow up, um, I think it's best that you become a this thing called a psychiatrist. You'll be able to do that because all you'll have to do is have someone lay on a couch and then they talk and then you listen. <laughs> And that was what my, my father says this to me very seriously, right? My mom had apparently read about some blind psychiatrist in the Reader's Digest or something. Um, and I once tried to look up who was this person my mom might have read about. I found some story about some blind psychiatrist who actually ended up getting indicted
2: for murdering people or something. Jeez. And so, I don't know. But anyway, so. They had no idea
1: what a blind person could do. And but at the same time I didn't really have the option to just live on government handouts or just you know do nothing, right? My mother was uh economically not in that situation where I could just do nothing. I mean, you know, we we were uh lower middle class and uh so I knew that the whatever was going to happen in my life was up to me. So when I went to undergrad, I looked around for different options. Um, and, and I will say that, you know, as someone growing up in near in uh, the high schools here in the U S, it, it was not easy. Like even in school, my guidance counselor thought that I like most other blind people would end up on government handouts. And if you look at the data. Even now, most blind people do. Um, but I wanted to be, when I applied and got fortunate enough to get to the Wharton School of Business, because I sort of decided I really wanted to do business because, you know, I couldn't be a doctor or couldn't be an engineer, but I could do business and I was going to make a lot of money. That was what I was thinking I got to undergrad. When I got there, I of course realized very quickly it wasn't going to be that easy to find opportunities. I mean, this is back in, you know, 1988. We didn't have ADA. Um, it was not a crime or illegal to say, look, you know, we don't think he was a blind person could do this job. And, and so I had many, you know, things I wanted to be like, I wanted to be a marketer. I wanted to be a brand manager type. I wanted to be a trader. I wanted to. You know, there were lots of different things that I was thinking of doing. And then I started to expand beyond. I said, well, could a blind person be an anthropologist or an archaeologist? And then I remembered what my dad had said about becoming a psychiatrist. And I thought, oh, okay, well, let me go try to go figure that out. And I looked into trying to become a psychiatrist and getting a medical degree. And, you know, back then it was not that easy. It was not, it was going to be difficult to make that case. And um, as I was doing my undergrad, I stumbled upon a course that was called social psychology. And it was, cre- it was all these experiments that scientists had run that was looking at human behaviors. And I was fascinated by it. And I remember walking into the professor's office to ask him if he would hire me as an RA and it was a long pause. His his name was John Sabini, and it was this long pause, and I started in that pause to explain to him why I thought I would really be a good candidate for an RA and how I could get things done. And I still remember that day where he started to pound his desk, and he said, I have it. You're it. And he was in the middle of doing a bunch of studies on embarrassment where he was you know, telling people, embarrassing things about them, like, you know, you're very smelly or you just failed this basic test. And he wanted to see the difference between getting this information about yourself when you're looking at yourself in a mirror versus um, being told by a person. And it occurred to him, wow, this could be a really interesting manipulation to be told by a person who you knew couldn't see you. So, you know, I was the perfect experimenter for that. Particular job. And so that was my first break. Now, what I would say is what I learned over time was that even though there weren't at that time blind, you know, social scientists that I could find, it wasn't obvious to me that anybody was going to say no. Like, what was going to be the reason why I couldn't do this? And it seemed to me that this could be something that I could make happen. And that's what essentially I was looking for what could be a job that I could do that I would be really good at and that I uh would really like doing? And so I began to do studies. Um, As an undergrad, I got fortunate because I did the very first study on religion. Um, and uh from there, I went to Stanford. And when I went to Stanford, again, I was looking around, okay, now that you're here, Sheena, what do you want to study? And I realized that what I really cared about was human motivation Um, and how to be productive. I'm like, well, of course I cared about that. I was this blind person that everybody kept thinking I was not as capable as I thought I was. And I kept feeling like people were selling me short. So I cared about motivation, I cared about pro- being productive. At the same time, there was this other layer going on, which was the fact that I was an Indian and American and I had to navigate these two seemingly competing cultures. and. Cultural psychology was becoming big at that point. The difference between the Japanese versus the Americans and the Chinese versus Americans was really entering um, our our sort of academic and intellectual space. And we were just starting to discuss. Them. Um And so I was like thinking, hmm, well, how can I combine those interests? And at the same time, remember, I had an interest in business and things that were very much about decision making, like marketing decisions, uh, stock decisions. And so I then began to look at
2: what were the core, if you thought about motivation, what were the big
1: categories of motivation? And one of the biggest categories of motivations about which in some sense we had written a lot about as social scientists and philosophers and political scientists. And in some sense, we had actually a very limited lens on was choice and self determination. And I, I, when I started to read the stuff on choice and self determination, maybe it was because on the one hand, you had these great lines, which I, you know, as an immigrant's child was really taken by, right? Like life, liberty and the pursuit of death equal opportunities for everybody. I mean, these were the core principles in the American dream. And so on one hand, he had that. And on the other hand, you had all these studies that showed that choice was this great motivator. On the other hand, anytime I would say to my mom, mom, I can do whatever I want. Or I would say to my mom when I was really angry at her, mom, I don't really care, okay? Just do whatever you want. These were insults in my world. And I began to realize that, you know, we didn't have a very rich understanding of choice. It was very limited. And it had really just been provided to us by certain assumptions from Western intellectuals. And it was really in 1993, at the end of my first year in my PhD program, that I started to ask the question, We so far have thought of choice as something universally understood in the same way because it's innate, it's inborn. But what if we were to think of choice as a social construct? And that was really the beginning of my work on choice. But I'm also at that moment making a choice and that choice was the choice to study choice. And I did make that choice um, in a very conscious way, I was very consciously saying, look, I want to study choice because this is something I care a lot about because of my own personal experiences. But it's also something where I somehow implicitly understood that this was a topic that was so rich, that was so multifaceted because so many different disciplines and so many people from different walks of life cared about it that I, that the, no matter how long I studied it, it would never be done, that it would keep giving. Um, And so I would say the best choice I ever made in my life was the choice to study
5: choice. Mm -hmm. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
6: And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
0: Well, let's into the, the book uh, because one of the things you talk about at the opening of the book is you say, we're all capable of generating an infinite number of creative combinations. Let's call them choices. Creating a new choice that's valuable calls for great discernment. You must pick apart the choices you've identified and the routes you could take to make your idea real. And that's no easy task. We can now refine our definition of innovation, a novel, useful combination of old ideas that come together to solve a complex problem. And I was thinking about how we could actually demonstrate this framework for people um, because I know it's kind of layered. And I thought to myself, well, let, let me just, you know, let's find a problem that I actually have and break it down through your framework. So one thing that I know is difficult is when people listen to podcasts, uh, they're often on the go. Um, so I thought, okay, well, how do I get more of my podcast listeners to sign up for my newsletter? It's a very simple sort of way to start this. But like, if we look, look at that question through this framework, can you walk us through each of these elements? Because I think it'll help people understand it.
2: Well, I like that. So
1: how do I get my current podcast listeners to sign up for a newsletter. Yeah. It's a nice problem statement, by the way. Thank what I you. like about that is we can define it as a question. It's concrete. We can imagine what a solution would feel like. Um, And we know how to break it down because it is concrete. So you didn't make it too big. You didn't make it too small. And you made it so that it would be meaningful. So that's step one, actually, of defining your so my question back to you then is, what are your biggest challenges? Why don't people sign up?
0: Well, I think that, uh one, a lot of people are usually not in front of their computers when they are listening to a podcast, like, for example. I mean, I strangely don't listen to podcasts, but when I do, it's only in the car. So obviously, I'm not clicking links to sign up for a newsletter. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, and I know for a fact, like our podcast listener base is far bigger than the size of our newsletter. Uh, the numbers are wildly different. So I've always wondered, it's like, OK, how do I, I match them up or like, how do I get more people to come to the website? And I like I said, the, the first issue is the fact that I, at least this is my assumption, is that for the most part, people are not in front of their computers. And I know this because it's the same issue we face with advertisers as well. Um, and I think it's what most podcast advertisers face. Does that help?
1: So your first sub problem is how do I make it seamless for people to sign up and it doesn't require their hands?
0: That might be one way to put at it. Yeah.
1: Okay. And what's another reason why they don't have signups? Or is that your biggest reason?
0: I don't know if that's the biggest reason. I, I think then the other is, you know, what is the incentive? And it's like, well, I get the podcast. Yeah. Like if I, for example, I don't sign up for newsletters when I listen to somebody's podcast. I'm like, I, I have the podcast. Why would I sign up? Like, what is okay. the incentive to sign up?
1: Okay. How do I, or you could, for that one, I would say, what are the different kinds of incentives that would make people want to continue engaging in this material?
0: Yeah. And we've tried that, you know, we've tried like, you know, offering free guides and stuff like that. Um, so I always wonder like, okay, where, you know, what else could we be doing here?
1: Okay. So you now have your problem and you have two sub problems, right? Yeah. And if you were to solve for these two sub problems, making it seamless. and giving people an incentive, if you could simultaneously solve for both of those, do you think it would significantly increase? I would have. It would significantly solve your problem?
0: It may. I would have to test it to find out. Uh, but just talking to you is making me think. It's like, OK, I know there are options where we can have people send in text messages to sign up for an email list um, and they can do that with their voice. So that's one thing um, I can you know, find out incentives. But yeah, so I guess it would to some degree.
1: Can you think of a third big problem that would also be important? Um, That we can either stick to two sub-problems or we can add one more.
0: Well, I I think getting people to visit the website, but that's, that's, I think, within those same problems. Um, I'm trying to think of what would be the next sub-problem in all of this, because I know that you say that uh, any big problem is made up of multiple Mm -hmm. sub-problems. It sounds
1: like you want to make it seamless. mm Mm-hmm. You want to give people incentives to want to continue and you want to increase exposure.
2: That's fair. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, so let's take up the first one. How do you make it seamless? So within industry, what, what, what's the best practice? Like what's a really, really successful podcast that does what you want it to do in terms of getting people to sign up and what do they do?
0: Well, the, the one that I heard actually was, you know, from one of my friends, my friend, Ozan Barl, who's a guest here. And he had mentioned, uh, Hey, you know, you can, if you want access to this thing, just, you know, send a text message with my name to whatever number. Um, and then that was it.
2: And who does that?
0: Uh, he's one person that's done that, but I've heard of other people doing it too. Um, I don't
2: know.
1: So for a tactic, you want to find an example of a very successful podcast. So it's within industry. Mm-hmm. And what are they doing so that you can carefully observe what it is that they're doing so you know how to mimic it?
2: Yeah. Okay.
1: Okay. That's within industry one tactic. Because, but as you know from the method, yeah, you have to also have a tactic outside of industry. Mm-hmm. So, who else has this problem where they're trying to get people to immediate to seamlessly take action after
2: learning something useful? Hmm.
0: Well, you're an educator. Do you have that problem? Like, let's say somebody sits in one of your lectures, they teach you teach them something that's actionable. Um, because I know plenty of people who take online classes who literally pay for them and never even watch one lecture.
2: Right. Yeah. So let's see. So I guess
1: that's why faculty write books as a way to get <laughs> people to. Rem- to remind them, mm. um, you have pharmaceutical companies that then send doctors. I mean, send up their sort of doctor-like people to go talk to doctors.
0: Yeah,
1: um, about their drugs. So there's this sort of follow-up.
0: You know, you just made me think of something um, because I get spammed from people who are trying to sell me health insurance like 20 times a day. Somebody sends me a text about their health insurance plan, even though I have health insurance. Not that I want to text my listeners 20 times a day, but.
2: It does sound like getting
1: some sort of a thing where you can make it through voice such that you now have access to be able to connect to them in a way that's seamless Mm -hmm. would be helpful. Yeah. Would help in your solving of your problem. In terms of incentives, what are you giving them that they might want?
0: Well, you know, we have a guide on how to uh, build a second brain using a note taking app that I use, but you just made me think of something that I hadn't thought to do. I mentioned it in the episode, but there's no link in the show notes. And I know people will pop on their their show notes and I just like reminded me of that. I don't know why I hadn't thought of that until now because that's so stupidly simple.
1: Okay, well, I think we've begun to solve your problem. I think you see how you would use the method.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um
1: and, you know, I would search beyond what I'm saying, just search far and wide and just start observing what are people in your industry and out of your industry doing to solve analogous problems to yours.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. You're not the first person that's trying to figure out incentives to get people to do something that, you know, they may not realize would be helpful for them.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, churches have the same problem. <laughs> right.
0: OK, so walk me through. So you you mentioned looking outside of the industry that you're in. And, I, you know, you actually had this example of Henry Ford and the assembly line and how that is, idea didn't actually come from manufacturing, it came from meat processing, if I remember
2: correctly. Mm-hmm. Yes. So. Oh, you want
1: me to tell you the yeah, story you explain, of the Henry Ford? Yeah, to explain
0: that to people, because I think that, you know, you're you're right. There is this sort of uh, myopic view for people, particularly in the online space who do the kinds of stuff that I do, to look literally just within our industry. It's like, oh, let's look, look at what all the other online marketers are doing. Do
2: you want me to tell the Henry Ford story
1: or the Netflix story?
0: I think the Henry Ford what story, talking about, because I think like the, the Henry Ford. Netflix story is, is very familiar to everybody. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. somebody's told before, the Henry Ford story was one that really stood out to me.
2: So. Did Henry Ford invent the car? The answer is no. It already existed.
1: Was Henry, did Henry Ford invent the assembly line for which he's often credited? The answer to that is also No. The best practice in the industry back then was the assembly line, which Osmobile was already using. The question that Henry Ford was answering is how do I make the car affordable? Back then, the car was about roughly somewhere between two to three thousand dollars. This is in the early nineteen uh, early nineteen hundred. So, what are the three subproblems? How do I reduce the cost of labor? How do I reduce the amount of time that it takes to make a car? How do I reduce the cost of material? So how do I answer the first one? How do I reduce the amount of, um, reduce the cost of labor? Well, the assembly line did that because now you have one set of people who know how to do this part of car making and another set of people who can build an engine or a battery, et cetera. And by specializing their skill sets, you could pay them less and you have more people that can do it. The second one was, how do I reduce the amount of time? Well, it, it took about 12 and a half hours to build a car back then. And so Henry Ford is on a mission to see, how do I reduce that? He discovers in the, well, one of his engineers discovers in the slaughterhouses of Chicago in a, in a sort of meat processing plant, that they had something that they called the, dis, the moving disassembly line. Where the animal would would be on tracks and it would be moving to the employees and so as it was moving, you know the employees would cut uh whatever piece they needed to do or do whatever task they had associated with their part of the job of packing the meat um and but the animal was moving to them they didn't have to go to the animal so then they bring this back to the car manufacturing, and they call it the moving assembly right, line, right? Because the car is being built, it's not being taken apart. By, by making the trucks move to the employees as opposed to the employees moving to the car, they were able to reduce the amount of time it took to build a car from 12 and a half hours to about three hours, which so was huge. Then the third thing they did was they asked the question, how do I reduce the cost of material? And around that time, there was this brand new uh, chemical paint that came on the market, which Henry Ford called Japanning because it kind of looked like the black lacquer of Japanese art. And uh, Henry Ford was famous for saying you could have your car in any color you want as long as it's black. And that's because the benefit of Japaning is that the paint would dry in about two days at max, somewhere between 24 hours and 48 hours. The average car back then took about seven days to dry. So he's making the car faster and it's drying faster. And what's happening within a few years is he's dropping the cost of make of a car then because of all these things that he's doing, he's bringing down the cost of the car to about $300. And that was huge. And that's literally what made the car, you know, the vehicle of, you know, every every household. Now, one of the things that in modern day sort of creative people talk about is they talk about how important it is to do customer anthropology when innovating. And a comment on that is that, you know, yes, you can learn a lot about what's wrong with what currently exists by studying your customers and looking at what challenges they're having. But we should never make the mistake of thinking customers know the best solution to the challenge that they have. If Henry Ford back then, in the early 1900s, when the car was over $2,000, if he'd asked his customers what
2: they were looking for, they would have told him they wanted a faster horse, a faster horse and buggy.
0: Hmm. So... Walk me through the tools that you offer, Um, because you talk about three tools. One is the choice map, which you say serves as your personal library for that one problem where you store all the elements as you build your idea. The second tool mm-hmm. is the big picture score. And the third tool is the third eye test. So talk to me about how those all work together to solve a problem.
2: The
1: choice map is what we just did with Henry Ford. Problem, sub-problems. What's a tactic that will solve each of the subproblems? And I collect all that information and then I try to combine those pieces in. Bed. Now, in the case of Henry Ford, I'm magically telling you the exact elements he combined. He obviously was looking around at a lot of different elements, which he ended up rejecting in favor of the ones he ended up using. You should never limit yourself to just one tactic
2: per subproblem.
1: So the choice map is. It's getting the pieces and it's organizing it in a way so that you can very deliberately combine. Because in Think Bigger, we don't rely on randomly occurring flashes of insight. We're being deliberative about
2: having that meaningful flash of insight. The big picture is so often um, we find a solution and then we don't want it. And that's because we don't
1: go through the effort of really thinking about what's our criteria, what's our selection criteria or criteria for success. And so with the big picture DAWs, and we have a method by which you create a score for every solution you generate, is we ask you the question, if I were to create the ideal solution to this problem, what should it feel like? And we don't ask what should it feel like to just one entity, right? Because current innovation methodologies, they either um only care about the feelings of the ideator, the creator, because obviously it's his or her passion that's the most important, or we only care about what the customer thinks because customers are our are king. Um And so what we do in Think Bigger, though, is we focus on three different stakeholders and we give them all equal weight. There's the ideator, How do you want the ideal solution to feel? So for Henry Ford, the ideal solution should feel, you know, like something you want to buy and the masses would want to buy because he wanted everybody to have a car. He wanted
2: to be the carman. What did the customer want? They wanted something that was affordable. And who
1: were his gatekeepers and allies meaning the people that were going to try to make it difficult for him and the people that were going to try to make it easy for him. The gatekeepers were going to be his competitors, of which he had plenty, that were going to try to undermine him. Um, And what would they want? Well, they're going to try to find some crack. And the Allies are people that could potentially make it easier for everybody to have a car. And so alliances, say, with governments that could actually build roads became key. And so understanding the want of these th- uh, these different stakeholders becomes important So we didn't say uh what solutions these stakeholders would want, just their wants and so now, if you were to build a choice map, like a prototypical choice map would have let's let's say would have be like a five by five well a five by five you could create. 3,125 unique solutions. It's the big picture score, the big picture scoring system that allows you to identify the the dominating alternatives. Right now, when people have solutions, they go with their pure gut. Which one sounds sexy or is that feeling shiny toy? Well, that's how people miss the fact that the segue really wasn't solving a problem for anybody. Um, people don't want wild ideas just for the sake of a wild idea, right? It actually has to. So sometimes, what, what so what the big picture score does is it enables you to see all your favorite ideas. What score would they really have? And that enables you to pick the idea that may not be the sexiest, but may actually be that. That, comb- that blend of sexy, but useful, but meaningful. So that's the purpose of the big picture, to allow you to see the trade-offs associated with your top
2: options. The third one is the third eye test. If you, um, let's imagine
1: you have, you've narrowed in, uh, I don't know, one or two options, and they seem really
2: good in your head. You think they're great. They're going to solve the problem. Let's just imagine you have one. You think it's perfect. Well,
1: you're not done yet. You're not ready to go out and prototype, create a minimum viable product. You have to still do the third eye test. And while the third eye test is a unique way of collecting feedback, it's it's not after ideation. It's still part of ideation. And so what we do in Think Figure is we don't run out and ask people, do you like or dislike my idea? What we do instead is we go and we share our idea. We describe our idea. And it's actually better to describe your idea verbally first. You maybe create a visual, but we don't need to build it out. It's actually a better test for you and for others if you if you're forced to have to describe it verbally.
2: And you describe it, and then you don't ask people, what do you think? Can you critique? You really only ask
1: people one of two questions, depending on where you're at with your ideation phase. You either ask them, how would you improve it? Kind of like a little kid coming up to you and say, oh, look at my drawing. Rather than saying, oh, this is really nice, you say, oh, what is this? And then they say, oh, well, it's a dog. And see? And then oh, okay, show me your dog. Okay, see, this is the head. This is the, you know, the little paws, etc. And then you say, okay, well, how about if we improve it by doing dot, dot,
2: dot? Okay, so the first thing you want to do is ask, how would you improve it? Then in the next phase, as your idea is
1: fleshing out more and more, and you're starting to feel like, you know what, I think people are Understanding what I'm saying. Now you start to ask people hey, if it were you describing the idea, how would you describe it? By the way, that's a very powerful tool. Asking somebody how would they describe the idea you just presented to them? Because now you get to see what they heard, you get to see what's stuck, you get to see how they would have framed it. It might actually teach you something about what things, how ways in which you could edit your idea. It's not about judgment. It's still not about like whether they like or dislike or whether they're going to buy or not buy. Who cares about that yet? You're still creating your idea. So the point at which you have an idea where I you see what I see, where there's alignment, now you finally have an idea. And at that point you can decide, is this an idea worth pursuing? And if it is, then you're ready to prototype. Or do whatever it is that your, your next stage phase in building it out.
0: So as I'm listening to you describe this, it kind of takes us back to the beginning of the conversation because my my instinct being the weirdo that I am is thinking, oh, I wonder if I could apply this to online dating.
2: Mm-hmm. Like the problem
0: of of you know finding uh like a, a life partner since, you know, the sub problem being my mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm saying that somewhat facetiously, but um, you get the point. But it, like, I'm curious, like, have you seen people apply this in social context as well?
1: Absolutely. You can apply this in social context. I, I use the um, choice map to help me find a, a romantic partner. Absolutely. I use it to... Help me figure out, okay, he's got, my son's got to apply to 15 colleges. How do we figure this out? I, I knew it was too difficult of a challenge for somebody at that age. So sure, I use it for all kinds
2: of things.
0: All right. Give me the the condensed version of how you would uh, apply this to finding
2: a romantic partner. How do I find somebody I don't know what your main
1: criteria is, but how do I find somebody that would be, let's say, I don't know, good fed or shared interests or whatever is important to you.
2: Okay. And so the sub problem is how do I figure out how to communicate or
1: represent myself so that they can see what my interests are. Second sub problem how do I interpret or study others' representations of themselves so that I can identify if they have the characteristics I'm
2: looking for? I suppose those are your two big sub-problems right there. Mm-hmm. And third is,
1: uh what are the different venues in which I can go to where I'm most likely to find the characteristics that I'm selecting for.
2: Yeah. So that in the first sub-problem, that means uh,
1: you look first in dating, what are the narrative styles that are more productive? And by productive, uh, you know it depends on you as to what your criteria is are you looking for a lot of likes or are you looking for a fit and so what are people doing in their narratives to best portray themselves such that they're more likely to identify a fit you would look that first in dating then you would look that look for that in terms of other products um like Companies, a lot of them are looking for the right kind of person to hire. Like, um, religious organizations are often trying to figure out who's most likely to be a good fit for their organization or charities, etc. This is not a problem that's unique to dating. Um, the second sub problem is how do I interpret narratives such that I can figure out who, who this person really is, right? And so you, you, uh, because you know, it, it's not easy to interpret dating profiles, say, on various dating, apps, right? So, are there, um, you? I would do research on okay, well, are there people that are really good at reading these profiles to identify characteristics? So, I would probably go talk to like those matchmakers, the very famous sort of fancy matchmakers, um, but then. Again, this is not a problem that's unique to dating sites, right? There's, um, you know, how do you figure out which uh, wealth monitor is actually telling you the truth and isn't going to be the next Bernie Madoff, right? Um, who's did that right? Um, uh, you know, the, and there's, you can think of other no. kinds of industries in which that same question pops up.
0: Wow. Uh, this has been fascinating because I I literally like my, my thought is to go transcribe this extract, you know, have my AI basically extract this and generate a template so that I can do this over and over again. Um, I like, I feel like you've kind of given us a methodology for solving all sorts of problems in our lives.
2: Oh yeah. I do think of it that way.
0: Yeah. Um, well, this has been really cool. I have so enjoyed talking to you. I've, one last question, uh, which is how we finish mm-hmm. all of our interviews, The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
2: It has to be something that is truly memorable about that person, that is recognizable. So it's not
1: something so wild that I don't know what it is. It has to be recognizable,
2: but memorable. So it could be a name, it could be, you know, a way that they,
1: you know, an idea that's associated with the person, it could be a visual attached to the person, but sure, that's, it has to be something that I would say is uh, unique, but recognizable.
0: Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, the book and everything else that you're up to?
1: Well, they can definitely follow me on LinkedIn. And other social media sites. So I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm on YouTube. I'm on Facebook. So they can definitely follow me in any of those places. They can also go to my webpage, and I would love it if they bought a copy of my book. Think bigger. And I really want everybody to think bigger about their lives because that's the way we create our most meaningful
2: choices.
0: Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that.
3: Small details are big surfaces, tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right.